Welcome. I'm Sean Cullen, and as part of the missions team here at Calvary, um, we're very excited about today, which is our missions conference Sunday. And um, we, you know, we put up flags all over, and we booths with our missionaries out out front, and uh, uh, it's a great time of uh, greeting them and meeting them. And a lot of our uh, people like to stay and talk and with them for long periods of time, and. Uh, even to the point of missing their cue to be in here to uh, lead a particular part of the worship. But uh, it's, it's a great uh, day that um, we're just ex- so excited to get many of them here that we can talk to and get to know our missionaries better. Um, you know, there's a brochure uh, that has the names of all of our missionaries on the back that you should all be aware of. And, and there's green brochures out in the, in the lobby that you can take and pray for uh, our missionaries and learn to communicate with them via the addresses and things that are on there. I encourage you to uh, take time and stop by the booths after the service and get to know them. One of our um, strategies as a missions team is to encourage church planting and church strengthening around the world. And we do that by trying to find missionaries that are doing that, as well as supporting and encouraging our own missionaries who are doing that. And uh, we're happy that, um, that in the process of sending out Beth Mack to South Africa, we came in contact with um, a pastor of the church where she's going to there in uh, Johannesburg. And he is was in the process of coming back here and getting his doctorate at the master seminary and we um, got to know him better and um, we're really encouraged to have him uh, brian and anita biedebach here today with us and um, brian's going to to preach and tell you a little bit about his ministry he started at, after he went to seminary he started in malawi and um, and then uh Shortly after, ended up in South Africa, where he's been for seven years, and, and he's interested in returning to Malawi, and he'll tell you a little bit about that. So uh, welcome, Brian, and uh, he's going to uh, preach the word today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I bring greetings from Grace Christian Church in Johannesburg and especially from Beth Mack to many of you who know her. She was involved with our church and our women's ministry there and with our um, orphan ministry to the abandoned HIV positive babies. And so uh, we bring greetings from her and also from the church that uh, I will be going to in Malawi. I I, uh, originally went and lived in Malawi when I was single uh, in 1997. And I was there for uh, a little over a year. I, I filled in for a year uh, for a missionary who was on furlough. And I, I was with an organization that uh, he was with. And so they asked me to go there. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I was living out way in the um, in rural areas. There was, uh, I mean, there was hippos and right on, the, on our property, crocodiles. It was, uh, it, it really, Malawi is the fourth poorest country in the world. 80% of the people live in the rural area. And our subsistence farmers live in mud huts. Uh, it was as Africa as you can imagine, um, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I was doing just about everything I, you could you could imagine a missionary doing. We had um, we're putting in a water line, we putting in a uh, electric line. We had a Bible college with twenty six students. We had a agricultural work and agricultural work with uh, four hundred chickens and fifty goats and a large garden, and we were building an orphanage. We had um, a 
camp for Malawian teenagers. These African kids would come to our camp. We had 280 kids come to our camp the year that I was there. And we actually would train them to go out on short-term mission trips out to other countries like Mozambique and other areas that are really hard to reach. And uh, it was just a, a great year. But consistently, I kept on being reminded that there was one thing that was really missing. And that is there was no local church. There was not one solid Bible teaching church in the area in which I was working. And so people were coming to Christ and there was no church like this one that I could plug them into. And so uh, having never pastored a church, but having been trained at the master's seminary, I had a high view of the church, but didn't want to start my ministry or church ministry in such a remote area. Uh, and so I ended up finding a church in Johannesburg, South Africa. And after a few months of arriving there, I also met my wife, who was a member of the congregation. And we uh, dated for a year and a half and were married in the year 2000. And so uh, I uh, decided to stay at that church since she was there. And since uh, the Lord had obviously opened up a ministry there f- for uh, me. And it was really great. It was a young church. It was a, I was able to help uh, establish it. And one of the... Um, the things I really appreciated was that there were other master seminary grads, guys who I went to, to seminary with, who were also working in the area. And so I had some great resources. We have a shepherd's conference there uh, once a year in South Africa where we bring over uh, teachers from the United States and they come over and, and uh, help train pastors. We have about 400 pastors and church leaders who attend our shepherd's conference. And I believe your pastor's coming in a couple of months. And so that'll be really exciting uh, for the ministry there. And We've been a part of a whole movement of biblical exposition in South Africa. There's a seminary there now that's been started. There's a, there are over 20 graduates of the master's seminary who are in South Africa now. And uh, there are other movements going on, but those are the ones I'm most familiar with because uh, I know a lot of the guys over there. And one of them was a member of our church that we sent to the master's seminary. He, he went there and came back. Uh, three years ago after he graduated and he's been pastoring alongside me for three years and we're right now in the process of handing over uh, the church and all the ministry we've been involved in in South Africa to him and the elders who are helping to lead that church and then my wife and I are headed back up to Malawi where Lord willing we are going to be planting a church there in the capital city of Lilongwe. And we were there in September and in August of last year, and there are already over a hundred people that are meeting every week, waiting for us to come to be the fir- for, for me to be the first pastor of their church. So we are just excited about that opportunity to really try and build into that. We ask you to pray for us, and my prayer is that uh, we would find twenty Malawian men in the next ten years that we could send down to South Africa, to the seminary there, Christ Seminary, and then bring them back up to Malawi and do a whole movement of biblical exposition in that country. So please pray for that. We have two who've gone down already and who are back who will be working with me the first year. And then we have two more who are already there. So we've got four out of the 20, 16 more. Please pray for that ministry. Take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 1. Be looking at verse 17, verses 16 and 17, but especially at verse 17. This morning, Romans chapter 1. The theme of the missions conference this year is the gospel around the world. Last night I began talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ as it has been presented to us in Romans 1.16. And if you wanted to summarize all of Paul's message from the book of Romans into two verses, the theme verses of this book would be Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which say... 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's important that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because the gospel of Christ accomplishes so much for the kingdom of God. The gospel demonstrates the very power of God by changing hearts which are naturally bent against God and turning them to glorify God. The gospel delivers believers from the presence and the power of sin. The gospel divides those who have genuine faith from those who don't have genuine faith. Not everyone in the world will be going to heaven. That is a clear teaching of scripture. Only those who have genuinely trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross will be saved. Which is why it is so right for this church to have a weekend dedicated for missionary interaction and missionary to, to get, help you guys get excited and this church get excited about partnering through prayer and other means of supporting missionaries who are on the field of also getting involved in uh, praying with them while they're here. And my prayer is that there would be some people here among you who from this weekend and hearing so much about missions would would begin to consider missions as a career for yourself. In fact, I'd be delighted if if, uh, as a result of this conference that uh, some of you went to go meet with the missions leadership team of this church and just said, you know what? I'm open to going to the mission field. And, And I would even like to map out a plan. What do I need to do to get there? And ask them to give you guidance because I know they would be eager to do that. And uh, there is such a great need around the world for churches like the one that you're being trained in and fellowshipping in here. The Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all things that I commanded you. Jesus instructed his disciples that they were to make disciples. The idea is that those disciples would make disciples and those disciples would make disciples. And the way they would, were to go about making disciples was threefold. And that is going and baptizing and teaching. And we need people involved in those kinds of ministries all over this world. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The theme verse that uh, is for this, this uh, gospel, for this weekend, this missionary weekend, which was read last night, is Rome, from Romans 10. It says, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Last night when they read that verse, I leaned over and said to my wife, I'm sure they haven't seen my feet. Because somewhere along the road in Africa, I picked up this fungus. I don't want to tell you too much about it. But uh, let's just say when I wear open-toed shoes, you can look at a couple of my toenails. And nobody quotes this verse to me and says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But of course, the idea behind that verse is not that your feet would be aesthetically attractive if you are carrying the gospel, but that the feet, because they are the the mode of transportation, bringing the good news down into a village that has never heard the good news of salvation, it's beautiful. 
Because the gospel is beautiful. And I would like to point out to you this morning that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel message is not only beautiful for those who don't believe and haven't heard it, but it's beautiful and inspiring and invigorating and encouraging for those who have heard it, for those who do know it, for those who are believers. Take a look at Romans chapter 1 verse 7 with me. I want to point out who the audience or who, who Paul is writing to in this book. In Romans verse one, chapter 1 verse 7 he says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called of saints. Called to be saints. He's writing to believers. His primary audience is the church in Rome. And yet just a few verses later in Romans 1.15 he says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Does that strike you a little strange? He's ready to preach the gospel to the church. I think that sometimes we get this idea that the gospel is really only for unbelievers and that the church needs to hear messages on discipleship and so forth. Well, it's true. The church does need to hear messages on discipleship, but the church needs to hear message about the gospel every bit as much as they need to hear messages about anything else. In fact, it's, uh, there was a one author, Jerry Bridges, who in his book, the discipline of grace said that you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. I love that book because uh, he had written a book previously to, pre, uh, prior to that called The Pursuit of Holiness where he called people to be holy. And in that book he said, if we sin, it's because we choose to sin, not because we lack the ability to say no to temptation. We are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. And he really calls people to a high standard of holiness. And after he wrote that book, he wrote another book entitled Transforming Grace. And he talked about the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the forgiveness of God on sinners. And he said he got so many people who had read both books and came to him and and told him, said to him, how is it that you can write one book about being holy and obedient and another book about grace and mercy? How do those two things come together? And so he wrote the book, The Discipline of Grace. And in there, he demonstrated from Scripture how grace disciplines us into holy living. And one of the keys that we all need to be reminded of is we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because the grace that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ will motivate you towards holy living. Let me give you an illustration of how grace can motivate people towards obedience. In Malawi, fourth poorest country in the world... 80% of the people, as I mentioned, are living in mud huts. Not a whole lot of places for kids to run and play. A lot of bush, a lot of uh, rough terrain. But there are roads going through the country from various places. And those roads, a lot of children are tempted to go play on the roads. There's not a place to roll a ball or, you know, it's a nice smooth surface. And so a lot of kids will be out on the tarmac, they call it, and uh, playing uh, around dusk especially. And uh, it's dangerous. You're driving and uh, a lot of children get hit. That's, that's just part of life in Africa. But I want you to imagine that you're one of those children that your parents said to you, hey, don't go play on the road. It's not safe. There are cars coming. And you don't see any cars coming for a long time. You live in a rural area. So you think, well, I'll just play. Other kids are playing out there. And let's say that a truck's coming along that road and you don't hear it coming. And finally, it's coming so close that one of your neighbors runs across the road, pushes you out of the way, and he himself gets hit by the truck. 
let's say he's paralyzed and he comes in a wheelchair and uh, months later, you're still feeling terrible, but you're grateful for the care and concern he had for you. Now, let me ask you this. If your friends say, hey, let's go play on the road. Would you do it? No way. That's still fresh in your mind. A few years down the road, though, would you do it? Maybe if you forgot, if you began to forget about the whole experience. But let's say you're on your way to the road to go play and you see the guy sitting there. You just be reminded of the grace that has been given to you. And there's no way you're going to be disobedient. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And brothers and sisters, we forget that sometimes. And it's hard to be obedient when you're not thinking about the cross of Christ, the grace, the love of Christ, the love of God to send Christ to die on the cross to pay for your sins so that you could enjoy a relationship with him. We need to be reminded of the cross. The gospel is beneficial for believers. And in Romans 1 verse 17, we find two details about the gospel that will help you understand the beauty of God's message. This is the how of the gospel, how it works. Verse 16 is the what of the gospel. What does the gospel do? It is the power of God. It brings people to salvation. In fact, everyone who believes will be saved. Verse 17 explains how the gospel saves those who believe. And two details about the gospel that will help you to understand the beauty of the gospel are found in verse 17. The first one is this. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. You see that clearly in the beginning of verse 17. For in it, the gospel that is, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, when the Bible speaks about the righteousness of God, it not only means that God is holy, that is, he is altogether perfect and separate from man, but it also carries the idea that he is right, he is just, which is a frightening thought for you and me, because if God is just, it means that he will justly punish sinners. And since you and I are sinners, we have wronged God, his righteousness should make us tremble. Jesus taught about the righteousness of God to his disciples. And the thought of Jesus's right uh, of the righteousness of God and the what Jesus talked about man being righteous, it confused them. They were confounded because the closest thing that they saw to men being righteous was something that Jesus said wasn't true righteousness at all. During the time of Christ, the people who claimed to live righteous and holy lives were Pharisees. Jesus continually confronted them. In fact, in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He calls them hypocrites. He said they were like cups that were clean on the outside, but full of extortion and self-indulgence on the inside. He called them whitewashed tombs. Full of dead men's bones. And the disciples were left thinking, well, if they can't make it into heaven, what hope is there for us? Because when the Bible speaks of righteousness, it's often associated with justice and judgment 
For example, in Acts 17, verse 31, it says, Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And because God's righteousness is so closely linked with his justice, Martin Luther, the monk, the 16th century monk, when he first read Romans 117, he hated the verse. He hated the word righteousness in the verse so much that he cursed God for including this verse in the Bible. It was the righteousness of God that has got us into this mess was his thinking. Take a look at verse 18, Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When, when, when Luther saw the word righteousness and connected it with men, it was a reminder to him that he was unrighteous, that he was a sinner. And when he thought about being unrighteous, it was connected to him that the wrath of God was coming for him. In fact, he tried Luther tried to live such a righteous life that he made everyone around him miserable. He fasted and prayed more than any, of the monk, any other monk that he knew. He devoted himself to menial tasks. He was so committed to confessing his sins that he spent hours confessing anything, any sin that he could think of that he had committed. Even the most trivial of sins. In fact, he confessed his sins so much of the time that his superiors got tired of listening to him. One of them, at least on one occasion, was ordered him to stop confessing his sin until he had committed some sin that was worth confessing. <laughs> and one day, John Staupitz, who was a superior of Luther, he, he said to him, he, asked, he says, Luther, why are you so sad? And he replied, I don't know what will become of me. He consoled him and said, more than a thousand times I have sworn to our holy God to live piously, and I've never kept my vows. Now I swear no longer, for I know that I cannot keep my solemn promises. And he went on to explain that if God's not merciful to him when he dies, he's just going to be perishing his sins. And that was the only hope he could offer Luther is I can't be perfect, and so God's going to have to be merciful, I guess. We hear that from people, don't we? Well, I don't know. I'll get up there, and the man upstairs, he'll, I guess he'll just have to be merciful to me. But that was no comfort at all to Luther. Where can you find peace in that? And then Staupitz directed Luther to a book that he was not familiar with. It was called the Bible. And Luther studied the Bible. And, and that's when he came across this verse. And it, it first infuriated him because, it, you know, the Bible continually spoke about the righteousness of God. And he always connected it with God's judgment. In fact, he later wrote in his life this, quote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. The, the word justice and the word righteousness is the same word in the original language. And your version might say the righteousness of God or the justice of God in Romans 1.17. But he says that one expression. He hated it because it, I took it to mean justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love just and angry God. I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. 
God is right, for he is righteous, and man is wrong, for he is unrighteous. And that word righteousness actually carries with it the powerful sense of absolute purity, absolute correctness. It's a good word for you to use, incidentally, if you run into somebody who says that they're not a sinner. I, I occasionally meet people. Yeah, I'm not. They say, oh, yeah, I start talking about their sin, which when you're evangelizing someone, when you're sharing the gospel, that is a great place to start is talk about sin and the wrath of God, which is to come and, the, and God's holiness because they will not go to Christ if they do not see their need for Christ. And uh, occasionally when I start talking about sin, somebody says, well, I'm not a sinner. Well, I've told a few white lies or whatever. And I've had a tough time having, how to approach that. And uh, I've tried different ways. One way I've tried is to try and say, well, you know, gee, you know, is there some dirt in your life that you can tell me about? I mean, and you don't want to do that digging around and it's just not pretty and it's really not what we're supposed to be doing anyways. But I found a different approach now. And that was and when somebody says that they're not that bad, I, I say, well, are you righteous? You'll have a tough time finding people who will claim to be righteous. If you find somebody who claims to be righteous, then you can... Because they are righteous and holy and upright, you can take verses that apply to God and you should be able to apply them to them, right? I mean, Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth. And without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, you and I know that 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 verse can only apply to God. But suppose your friend named Fred goes along with your question and says, yeah, I'm righteous. Take him to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Fred is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a man of truth. And without injustice, righteous and upright is Fred. Go around proclaiming that behind him. <laughs> How long do you think that's going to last? I mean, sure, his wife will tell you to stop. There will be plenty of people who will be able to say, I don't know if that's really true about Fred. Surely there is only one who deserves the title of righteousness, and that is God alone. And his righteousness is a reminder that our unrighteousness is deserving of judgment. And if it weren't for one other word in this passage, we too might be like Luther, angry that this talks about God's righteousness coming to man. But the other word which causes us to think that this is a different kind of righteousness than the judgment of God is the word gospel. Do you see it in verse 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel means good news. And in verse 17 when it says, for in it, that it refers to what? The gospel. So it's saying, for in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you see that this is a good verse about the righteousness of God and how it's revealed to man from faith to faith? In fact, verse 17 is sort of a parallel verse. The structure is very similar to that of verse 16. And that's why I think from faith to faith is speaking about different individual faiths of believers, faiths of believers. You can see he's saying from your faith, from your faith, from your faith, from faith to faith, to faith, to faith. In fact, if you look at verse 16, you'll see that it says it is speaking about the gospel. Verse 17 begins in it. 
the gospel. Verse 16 says, it is the power of God to salvation. Verse 17 says, it is the righteousness of God, or in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 16 says, it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And verse 17 says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith to faith to faith. In other words, you can see the righteousness of God demonstrated in faith to faith to faith to faith. And anyone who has genuine faith in in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's a good kind of righteousness. Because it's part of the good news. How is God's righteousness to be revealed in the lives of believers from faith to faith? And how can that be a good thing? Well, the first detail we've seen is that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. But we'll see more about how it could be possible in the second part of verse 17. The second detail tells us, which tells us why God's righteousness is part of the good news, is that the gospel reveals God's declaration. First detail we saw is that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And the second detail is the gospel reveals God's declaration. And his declaration is this. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And these are the words where we find great comfort. We first notice that Paul says, as it is written, which tips us off to the fact that this is a quote from the Old Testament. And in order to understand this, it's helpful for us to go back to the Old Testament and see the context in which it was originally written. So I ask you at this time, almost in a hesitant way, but I ask you to turn back to the book of Habakkuk. Just five books before the book of Matthew. Small, minor prophets, not big books. So just turn to the book of Matthew and go back five books. If you hit Daniel, you've gone too far. We'll get there to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet during the reign of one of Judah's worst kings, most wicked kings. His name was Jehoiakim. You don't hear many people naming their children Jehoiakim because his name just sounds wicked. Jehoiakim was king at that time and he started his reign in 608 BC. It was a time when wicked men were getting away with violence and corruption and it seemed like nobody, not even God, was willing to do anything about it. There was no justice system. In fact, the justice system in, in Judah at that time in the city of Jerusalem was just uh, a complete ruin. So Habakkuk complained to God in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. Listen to his complaint. Habakkuk Chapter 1, verse 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry and hear? Sorry, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention and arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, the perverse judgment proceeds. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Father God, I'm crying out to you. I'm your prophet. I'm your voice here. But I see corruption all around me and I don't see anything being done about it. Why is that so? And God answers him. Take a look at verse five. The Lord says, look among the nations. And watch. Be utterly astounded. 
For I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. You see, this is what he's getting at. The Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians. God says, don't worry about the corruption that's there in Judah and Jerusalem, because I'm raising up a nation, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're a terrible, terrible nation, and they're going to come in and destroy you. Then all those wicked people will get what, what should be coming to them. Verse 7, he says, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also swifter than leopards and are more fierce than an evening wolf than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead and their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are like the east wind. They gather the captives like sand and scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. They heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing power to his God. Well, this isn't exactly the answer that Habakkuk was hoping for. You see what the problem is? The problem was that his people were corrupt and he didn't see any justice. And God says, no problem. I'm going to bring down wrath. And it's coming from another nation, from the Chaldeans. And then there's another problem. Habakkuk says, well, what about the Chaldeans? They're worse than we are. How is it, God, that you find justice in sending an ungodly nation, complete, a completely ungodly nation, to bring justice down on a nation that is partially ungodly? That's really his next complaint. In verses 12 through 13, he says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Here's his complaint. Verse 13. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Wow. Well, God is a patient God, and he answers Habakkuk. His answer is found in chapter 2. Again, it's probably not the answer that Habakkuk is looking for, but his answer is basically found all throughout chapter 2, and that is, it's okay, Habakkuk, because I'm going to destroy the Chaldeans too. In fact, I'm going to destroy everyone who sins. Take a look at uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision And make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak and it will not lie though it tarries wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Do you see that? That is where Habakkuk finds his, his, his hope and his faith. And indeed, God did bring wrath. And Babylon was raised up. The Chaldeans did come in. And in three successive waves that crashed down on Israel, on Judah, like a tsunami, and wiped them away and dragged them off back to Babylon, that's what happened, just as God said it would. But because God had also said, the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk was able to say, God, I don't see everything in your plan. 
But by faith, I'm going to believe that you will preserve a people for your own whom you will call righteous because you have said you would. And so he ends his book, the end of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, singing a praise. Just look at these verses. Verse 17, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive tree may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold. You see, he's saying, even though all these bad things are going to happen, he says, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like the deer's feet and he will make me walk on the high hills. Go back to Romans 1 verse 17. The reason why Paul quoted Habakkuk 2 verse 4 in Romans 1 verse 17 is because there was a parallel situation going on there. You see, during Habakkuk's time, there was a coming judgment, a coming wrath. And God told Habakkuk, the only way to get through this and survive is to have faith for the just shall live by faith. And when Paul's writing to the church in Rome, he's telling them that there is a future time, a time coming of judgment on the earth, a wrath that is to come, which he talks about in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. And he says, but the just shall live by faith. In other words, if you are going to make it through the coming judgment of God's wrath, not on a nation for its wicked deeds, but on all mankind for their sin against a holy God, if you're going to survive, it's going to be not by good works, not by your own strength, but only by faith in God. How do you know you will be saved? What is the mark of someone who will genuinely be saved? They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe in Christ's righteousness. Like Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. True Christians trust not in their own good works to get them to heaven but in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross where his righteousness was placed into their account and their sin was nailed to the cross. The faith that is described throughout the book of Romans, the faith in Christ, it's not just a one-time act. It is a way of life. It is an attitude that you have that no matter what happens around me, no matter no matter no 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 matter what kind of wave comes crashing down around me, the just will live by faith. My life resounds with a peace in a God who is sovereign and holy and has a plan to preserve righteousness. Nothing will else else will get you through the wrath to come. If you think you can get to heaven because you're a good person, you're trusting in a different gospel, one that will not save you. If you, if you think you can get to heaven because you were baptized in a certain church or because you had given some sort of gift to a church or done anything that someone has told you to do besides believe, those things will not save you. If you are genuinely saved and you understand the grace which has been given to you, out of natural heart, you will want to fellowship with those who are also redeemed. You will want to hear the word of God preached. You will want to give towards the kingdom of God. But it will not be compulsory. It will not be an outward action conforming you to make you look spiritual. It will flow out of your heart, which God has actually made righteous because of the work of Christ on the cross. The just shall live by faith. 
You cannot be saved by anyone else's merit except for Christ's merit. In Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was lecturing later in his life, Frederick of Saxony, who later became a good friend of Luther, had accumulated a large collection of relics. And it was said that if you saw all of Frederick's relics, you could take off two million years of your time you were due to spend in purgatory. So a lot of people wanted to see his relics. He had a fancy for them himself. Supposedly he had, among other things, hair from the beard of John the Baptist, pieces of the cross. And it was said at that time that there were enough people. There were, there's so many people who claim to have pieces of the cross that if you put them all together, you could build a boat. <laughs> Luther, earlier in his life, had also gone to Rome. Someone had told him that if he went to the sacred scale, the sacred steps. And he climbed them on his knees and he said, the Pater Noster or the Hail Marys on his way up. That... That would take his time away from purgatory and make him righteous. They had this false idea of a false place called purgatory. The, these stone steps were steps that the crusaders supposedly carried back from Jerusalem and brought them to Rome. They were the ancient steps that led up to the judgment hall in Jerusalem. And since Jesus would have walked up those steps, they were seen to be sacred and important, important relic for Rome. And it was on these steps in 1510 when Luther was trying to reduce his time in purgatory, that he reached the top of the stairs and he turned around and he saw everyone else climbing up the steps on their knees, repeating the Paternoster, repeating the, the Hail Marys. And in disillusionment, he cried out, who knows if it's true? And that was the seed that was planted in his mind to realize that he was a sinner, that he wasn't righteous, that he needed to find a form of righteousness that was outside of himself. And it led him to the word of God. He began reading and when he came to this verse, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That he first understood after struggling with the passage, but seeing that it had to be good because the gospel was there, he understood what the Bible means when he says, when it says the just shall live by faith. And he later wrote, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise and the whole of scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage, that passage to Paul, sorry, this passage of Paul became to me, he said, a gate to heaven. Do you see what Luther saw? Do you see that in that phrase, the just shall live by faith? That you have a gift this morning. That God has provided a way for you to be declared righteous by God. And the only way that you can be declared righteous since you are not righteous in and of yourself is through the work of Christ. And the means that God has chosen to use to declare you righteous is faith. And so you must believe. And if you believe, you will be saved. You will be delivered. That's the gospel. That's the good news. 
It is faith and faith alone. The just shall live by faith. As the hymn writer has said so beautifully, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. The gospel reveals God's declaration that the just shall live by faith. And glory and and brothers and sisters, you need to know that there are billions of people who do not know this message. And my prayer is that you will make it your mission. That wherever God has placed you or wherever you hear of a need that you can go to to proclaim this good news that your feet would be seen as beautiful. Let's pray. Oh, our Father God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this passage which transformed Luther's life, brought him to know you in a real way and know righteousness in a way that was good. Thank you, Lord, that we also can see it this day and understand it and know it. You alone are able to keep us from falling. You alone are able to present us before your glorious presence one day without fault. You alone are able to present us before your glorious presence with great joy. So it's to you, the only God, our Savior. We say, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.